I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Another great episode. My guest for today is Heather Hauer. And Heather talks about her experience in her eating disorder and her experience in recovery. And it is really an incredible narrative to hear. I really don't want to say anything more because it's such a beautiful episode. I just want to jump right in. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited and really honored to have our guest on today, Heather Hauer. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Heather, I'm so excited to have you here. You and I are in a special interest group together through the Academy of Eating Disorders. So we get to chat occasionally through through Zoom, through our meetings. And so I know how exciting this, this episode is going to be. So not to put too much pressure on you, but Heather, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Heather Hauer, and I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker. I went to undergrad at Brown and grad school at Berkeley, uh, so I have lots of uh, liberal thoughts on things. <laughs> um, I'm a faculty research associate at Brown University School of Public Health. That's my home base, and I'm a faculty social specialist at UCSD School of Medicine Eating Disorder Center for Treatment and Research with Walt Cade and team. Um, as Karen said, I'm a member of AED. I'm also on the board of NIDA. Um, I am a grant reviewer for the Department of Defense, a manuscript reviewer for uh, IGED, um, et cetera. But I'm really focused on capitalizing on eating sort of traits of strengths and recovery and championing that, promoting temperament-based treatments and defining recovery, which I know we'll talk about in more detail later. This, all of this is so exciting. And so I I think what I want to start by asking is, can you share a little bit with the listeners about, you know, you, you had your eating disorder for 23 years. And I know that there's a lot of clients that I've treated or a lot of family members who say they've had it for so long, they're never going to recover can you share a little bit about your process, about your experience in the eating disorder, maybe even what the function was, which I don't really ask 
guests that often, um, and how you navigated through it after 23 years. Yeah. Um, so obviously it's a long story, but in the recovery bites, uh, synced version of that, um, my anorexia onset when I was 12 years old due to the usual combination of genetics, the family history. And then for me, my environmental trigger was ballet. And I was really good at dancing and my coaches uh, encouraged my anorexia. Uh, in terms of what was the function, um, it was a way to cope anorexia became my way of being the perfect person on the outside, uh, even though I didn't feel like a perfect person on the inside. For me, eventually, um, when I collapsed from it, um, to have my body say the words that my mouth couldn't. And more specifically, when I did try to express to my parents and my coaches that I didn't want to dance professionally, even though I was really good, um, they didn't really listen to me, but they did listen to the anorexia when I was in the hospital. So it did serve that function for me at that time. And I have to acknowledge that. Um, fast forwarding through 23 years, um, it worked for me until it didn't. And my first um, times in the hospital, granted, they were many, many years ago at this point. My first one was 94, um, we didn't have the knowledge that we have now. We didn't have the therapeutic techniques that we have now. We didn't have the neurobiology, you know, fMRI technology that we have now. So my experience at the time was um, when I came in, anything related to the eating disorder, including my sort of pre-morbid anxiety traits. So similar to the anorexia, you know, genetics, environment, um, I had uh, lots of anxiety. I started with, well, my grandmother used to call me a worry wart, right? And so she was a worry wart, my dad was a worry wart. Uh, in retrospect, it would probably be diagnosed by the DSM originally as over-anxious disorder as a child, which we would now call generalized anxiety disorder. And to try and manage that anxiety, I basically developed OCD. And then I had a series of traumas in my life, PTSD, and then when that can be contained, I had panic disorder and panic attacks took over. But at the point when I went into the hospital for the first time, um, it was mostly GAD and OCD. But going back to the tra traits of strengths point, that OCD, that perfectionism helped me do really well in school and really well in ballet. And it made me feel like, okay, I have some worth. I'm, I'm still good. But the treatment model at the time was, again, anything related to the eating disorder, like perfectionism, attention to detail might be a vulnerability for developing the eating disorder. Um, they wanted to get rid of that too. So it was kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? And we're going to get rid of everything that could possibly be related to the eating disorder. We're going to make a whole new you. And the result of that was I felt like pretty demoralized. And then Ed, the eating disorder in my head, like dug in and said, you're trying to take away what's special for me. And so there was a whole bunch of um, 
you know, resistance from Ed. They also had uh, the level system where I had to make way in order to earn privileges. So for example, I had to make my way each day in order to have my reward of like a 20 minute phone call from my best friend. So there really wasn't a lot of incentive motivation for me to recover. And again, fast forwarding to when I feel like I truly recovered. Um, so before my anorexia recovery, um, to give you a bit more context, the previous year had been really difficult for me. Um, that previous July 20th, um, 2011, my dad passed away suddenly from a massive cerebral hemorrhage. So we were not expecting that, um, obviously. And so I was obviously grieving and trying to process it. And I was really in a depression. And I, uh, was also talking with my husband Lee about having children because his reaction to death was, you know, life is short, let's try. And with the anorexia, I really uh, did not want to be pregnant. Um, so with everything going on, I asked my PCP to put me on Prozac. Um, so I started that, um, that January, 2012 and the usual, um, you know, SSRI, two weeks in, you feel a little bit different. Four weeks later, you really make a difference. And for me, the anxiety cloud lifted. And I was able to consciously decide to recover from the anorexia because of that. On, on that day, and I have an exact day, I know a lot of people don't have an exact day, but I sort of had like this aha moment. So for me, my true recovery day um, was February 16th, 2012. And I remember it really vividly because I'd gone out to dinner for Valentine's Day with my husband the other night. And I woke up that morning, like I did every morning. And without even getting out of bed, Ed was in my head yelling like he normally did. I basically, he was like a dictator. And before I even got out of bed, he was yelling at me. He's like, well, you know, you overate um, at dinner and today is a Thursday. And so this weekend you are going with your in-laws and their foodies. So you need to lose the weight in the next two days before you go over the weekend, because then you have to eat their things and you're fat, you're ugly. You need to exercise a lot more. You need to blah, 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 blah. And I hadn't even gotten out of bed. And I had the snapshot of my life for the past 23 years. And I was like, if I don't change this, this is the rest of my life. And I got out of bed and I told my husband, Lee, I said, I'm done. He's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm finally ready to recover for me because I'm sick of it. And I want sanity and I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm going to get a team of peeps because I hadn't been going to therapy or taking meds for a while. I'm going to get a team of peeps together and I'm going to do this. And Sanity has always been my motivation to recover. And then times when I struggle, and we can certainly talk about that, but I'll just go back to like nothing Ed promised, first of all, ever really happened, but nothing that he could promise is worth as much to me as sanity. And that is always going to trumpet. And in any moment, I'm always going to choose that. 
And so I remember that that day vividly. It was a it was a turning point. I also have to give it a little bit of context too. So the previous year was was uh, pretty difficult for me. Um, that July twentieth, uh, my dad um, passed away suddenly um, from a macerable hemorrhage the day before sixty third birthday. So none of us saw it coming. And I was in shock. I was in grief. I was, you know, just trying to process it. Um, and everyone reacts to, you know, death differently. And um, my husband, you know, had been talking with me about having kids. And with the anorexia, I, I did not want to be pregnant. It's not that I didn't want to have kids. I didn't want to be pregnant. And so he was pushing me on that. And I was just in a really bad place and I was getting very depressed. And I asked my PCP um, that January to put me on Prozac. And the usual like two weeks, you feel a little bit different. And then four weeks, it really kicked in. And so basically the four weeks was mid-January, which was a month before my February 16th recovery. And a key aspect of that was it wasn't prescribed for the anorexia because as we know, there's no FDA approved medication for anorexia specifically, but for comorbid disorders like anxiety, they are. And so what happened was for me, the Prozac helped lift the anxiety cloud to the point where I could actually concentrate because in between Ed and the anxiety, I couldn't hear anything. Like I couldn't hear Lee. I wasn't really present because I was all in my head and the anxiety cloud lifted and I was able to consciously choose to recover. And I talked with my PCP and I talked with my nutritionist at the time and they're like, don't give the med all the credit because if they anxiety lifted, you could still choose to keep the anorexia. You chose to take it to the next level. So the Prozac got you in the headspace to be able to make that choice, but you still chose to bring it in the next direction. And so I think all of those things helped me. And then with the Prozac, with recovery, I started to talk with my husband about kids, but I was still early on in my recovery. So we went the IVF um, gestational carrier route um, and we got our daughter Summer, who just turned six. So she's biologically ours, um, but someone else carried her. And I had the conversation with Lee early on. Part of my hesitancy was not only the pregnancy, but like, you know, passing on my genes. But we decided, you know, we were we were still going to do it. And I said, well, I can't control the genes, but we can control the environment. So she's not going to be in ballet or gymnastics or figure skating. But she has been dancing around for a while now. But I love it because it is joy. It is literally dance like no one's watching. Like she doesn't even have to have anyone there. There could be music. There could not be. Some of her movement is ballet-esque and some of that is from her cousins or watching YouTube, but there's no body consciousness around it. There's no, you know, 
sort of feeling like it needs to be structured and she'll like do something that's ballet, but then she'll do something that's like disco right next to it. And I reaffirm to Lee, like, this is what pure joy is. This is what pure joy of movement is. This is what pure joy of being in your body is before the world tells you what's wrong. And I love that. And I love that about her. And, you know, I can't go back to my childhood if I had a magic wand, you know, to wave it. And, you know, sure, I would wish that I have anorexia or whatever, but I can't. But for me, it's like a chance to experience the second childhood and everything that it should be with all of the joy and all of the wonder. And, you know, I can't protect her from everything and nor should I, but like, I can provide like a loving, nurturing, understanding environment that I never had. And that just feels really amazing in a way. I sort of feel like I, I came full circle. And in the meantime, if there's anything that my experience and sharing my story can do to help even one other person, then I think it's totally worth it. There are so many beautiful moments in that narrative that I wanted to jump in, but I, I, I held my tongue. I sat back, Heather, I didn't do it because that was beautiful. That was beautiful because it was vulnerable and, and thank you for sharing your experience. It was also beautiful because it really, in a, in a, quite a, an, in a way of imagination, it, it really narrated all the things that go into the recovery process, such as medication, medication was not the only thing. Then it was choice. Then it was understanding genetics. Then it was, if we have a child, how, and she's going to have the same genetics. Now we need to change the environment. Like that was just a full picture. And I just want to start by saying, thank you. That was really beautiful. You're welcome. My next question is, so and, and I'm sure listeners are saying, okay, so February 16th, what did you do? Like, what, how did you make those choices? How did you navigate through it? Because I, I also, and I'm going off on a tangent and I apologize. I, I shudder when I think about your experience in treatment. That's not the way treatment is supposed to be. I apologize. I mean nothing, no disrespect to wherever you went. Um, therapy and eating disorder recovery is not about a reward and punishment. We do that enough in our eating disorders. And there's no correlation. So, you know, you not being able to talk on the phone because you might not have reached a certain weight goal one day, there's no correlation. Maybe if they said you can't go on a walk that day because you're, you're expending, you know, more energy, but to take away something that's a social soul lifting experience that could help you, that's what infuriates me. So I apologize. I know I just went off on a tangent tangent. I wonder if you have anything to say before I ask you to go back to February 16th. Anything I have to say about had to say about the the treatment experience? Yeah, I again fully acknowledge that, you know, this was back in 94 before we knew a lot of what we know now. Um I I did feel like the only thing I had 
you know, was my best friend and they wouldn't let me see her in person. This is like old school. So it's payphone, right? Like you have like 20 minutes on the payphone, right? And so I wasn't seeing anyone, right? And this was the one thing I looked forward to each week. And then for them to take it away through no fault of my own, I mean, I don't even know if they knew what hypermetabolic state was back then. They're like, you must be hiding out. I'm like, I don't do that. I don't do that. I also don't throw up. You're with me in the bathroom. They would physically come in the bathroom with you. So at the time, it was pretty demoralizing because if I wasn't making weight because I was hypermetabolic, you know, they assumed it was my fault that I was doing something um, to produce that so that I was hiding food or that I was throwing up. And I never threw up and I told them that and they were physically with me in the bathroom all of the time to make sure that I didn't throw up. So that was like really embarrassing from a privacy perspective. But the one thing I was looking forward to was talking to my best friend. That's, that's really all that I had. And when you sever that social connection, it's like then you're completely isolated. Um, and I, I always go back to, you know, one of the things I read from Carolyn Costin, and I've talked with her about it since, but her mantra, relationships replace eating disorders. And I very much wanted to be a best friend. And I wanted to have fun with her and just experience life. And that was taken away from me. Um, and forgive me for interrupting, but we also know that eating disorder behaviors and especially thoughts thrive in isolation. Yes. So that was a really, and, and again, I also do want to acknowledge, like you said, that was in 1994. Although there are still some programs that can feel at times punitive. And speaking of Carolyn, so Carolyn has an assignment in her book, The Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, which is your, your traits. Are they an asset or a liability? Meaning we cannot take those traits out of you, but we can help you balance them out. Just like you said, you were a perfectionist, which unfortunately, I'm assuming, went into your eating disorder. You became the perfect person with anorexia. You had the perfect anorexia. But when you learn how to adapt that into a healthier coping skill, you became, you know, a perfectionist at your education and look at where it's gotten you. And you you might have become a perfectionist in other areas. And listeners have heard me say this a thousand times. Part of my eating disorder is I am and always will be overly emotional. It's who I am. I couldn't, I couldn't modulate it though, if that's the right word. When I was younger, it was like, I didn't have healthy boundaries. Everything upset me. Your pain would have devastated me. I learned though, that as an emotional human being, this is the work that I want to do. I shifted it somewhere else. You can't take it out of somebody. So, so I'm sorry that they were trying to also take away a part of who you are, what I would have hoped and what we're now learning is we help people with what traits they were born with and how to navigate through it. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the traits usually onset 
before the eating disorder and they're going to persist afterwards. So you might as well use them for good versus evil, right? So perfectionism really helped me in school. It really helped me in ballet. It really helped me in work. Um, even though they didn't have this as a treatment model back in the time, back in the day, um, I said, well, you know, I was a perfectionist at anorexia, you know, maybe I could be a perfectionist at recovery. And so at the time it was, okay, I'm going to eat all my meals. I'm going to go to all my therapy sessions. I'm going to take all my meds. And I did that and I was good at it, but I, you know, lacked the internal will to do it. And it wasn't till I think my actual recovery that I said, okay, I'm sick of Ed. I'm really done with it. And now I'm going to apply these tools for real and for good. And so bring us back to that day then. So February 16th, you wake up and you're like, I can't do this for one more day. Mm -hmm. How was, how was that process? Like what, what, what were, what are some skills that you can tell people that you utilized or how did you, and, and did you do it alone or, oh, you said you, you got a team together at that point. So important, Heather, there it is. That's the beginning, right? Right. That's the beginning. And, um, uh, yeah, I have to say it was a combination of like, I'm sick of this. I'm over this, like I'm done. And a willingness to start recovering, not knowing what it was going to look like. Um, so one of my other, uh, initial mentors when I was uh, starting recovery and now we're good friends is Jenny Shaver. Uh, and she has so many good quotes that I love as well. My favorite one is um, from life at, the, at her first one, you know, in terms of like trying to explain in disorders, um, her quote is from the outside looking in, you can't understand it. And from the inside looking out, you can't explain it. And even though that's the case when I was, you know, starting to recovery and I didn't have the words myself, I, I gave that book to my husband and my family and, you know, that really helped with it. But another quote that she has is like taking that leap of faith, like jumping off the mountain and not knowing how it's going to go, but you know, there, there is a parachute there, but you don't, you don't know what's going to happen exactly on the way down. And so you know, I, I said to Lee, uh, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm going to do this. And to be honest, one of my biggest concerns in, in this unknown, you know, cause we all fear the unknown is, um, what, what I was going to be as a person, um, because Ed was part of my identity for so long. Right. And it's kind of like an abusive relationship where people are like, well, why don't you just give it up? But it's not that easy, especially when you spend it in your life for so long. And so my biggest fear was like, who am I without Ed? And I knew that underneath everything, there was what I call an essential Heather. And it's hard sometimes to think about that. But if I, if I go back to childhood, sort of where summer is now, and I go back to, um, 
before I started ballet really seriously when I was seven. Um, and I go back to those sort of relatively carefree days. Um, the essential Heather uh, loves to be in nature. Um, she's optimistic. She's goofy. Uh, she loves humor. She loves scuba diving. She loves skiing. She loves spending time with her friends. She loves reading and movies and all these other things. And uh, I got to rediscover that along the way. And I knew she was in there. I just didn't know how long it would take for me to get there. Um, and, you know, we talk about this in different circles, but, you know, people that haven't experienced eating disorders and recovery sort of have this vision that it's, it's recovery is this straight line, right? And you go from one day having an eating disorder to every day getting better and better and better and better. And then finally, ta-da, like you're cured, right? And those of us with lived experience know that it's not like that. It's all over the place. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes you feel like you're recovered. And then, you know, depending upon what your definition of that is, um, things happen and you have a relapse again, however you want to define that. Um, and I think uh, you had alluded to it earlier, like the perception, the misperception, the stereotype that you're just going to have this linear, linear trajectory, you know, sets you up to fail. Like it sets you up as an individual to have false expectations, but it also sets up the people around you that you're, you know, going to achieve this. And then everyone's disappointed when inevitably that doesn't happen. And then, you know, it comes back on, well, you didn't try hard enough or you didn't care or whatever, when really there's so many other things going on that contribute to that. And part of that is genetics and part of that is neurobiology and part of that is environmental triggers and learned behaviors and trauma and so many other things. Um, so for me, I, I started the journey not knowing what it was going to be like, but similar to the sanity, I had said to myself, there has to be a better life than this. And I remember some parts of it from when I was little and even throughout the anorexia and the ballet, like I always wanted to be normal. Um, before I had a word for anorexia, I knew I wasn't normal. I, I didn't know why, um, but I wanted to be, I wanted to hang out after school. I wanted to, you know, play sports. I wanted to have a boyfriend. I wanted to go to the prom. I never did any of that, you know? Um, and then I, I didn't want to dance professionally. I was forced to dance professionally. Again, I did really well, but, you know, collapsing with anorexia and going to the hospital was the only way to get out of it. And then I, and then I was able to go to Brown. I wanted to go and be normal and I didn't dance at all. And I joined the sailing team and I co-ed fraternity and, and all of that. And I had to, I had to make that on my own. Um, but I just, I just had this faith that like my life, my life for 23 years for the most part sucked. Um, and there had to be something better. And I also kind of gave myself like this out. Um, and it was, it was sort of like a bargaining chip with Ed because back in the day, everything with Ed was either him yelling at me 
like a dictator and me just like not questioning his rules. But another thing was bargaining, right? And so sometimes it's like when I was out at a restaurant, you know, and I would worry about like what to order, Ed would be like, well, you know, don't get this. And then I would bargain and say, well, if I have this, then I won't eat for the rest of the day. And he'd be like, okay. So my bargaining with him in the beginning of recovery was, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. Um, and more specifically, like, I'm not going to go cold turkey. Like, I'm going to try eating a little bit more in the day, right? But I'm not going to give up the running for hours. I'm not going to, whatever. I'm just going to do the little. And I said, you know, if this doesn't work, like, I can always quit. I can always come back to you. And for Ed, that made it a little bit easier. Um, and you'd asked that, you know, sort of in a different context, what is, what is, what is a pivotal moment, right? It was there a pivotal moment. And I also remember this clearest day. It was six months after I started recovery. And uh, I had a lot of momentum in the beginning. I was like, let's, let's do this, you know? And I felt like Princess Jasmine and Aladdin, you know, it's a whole new world. I can't sing it all, but just, you know, imagine that. And, uh, and then six months in, I was finally weight restored enough where my period came back. And I hadn't had my period for, I don't even know how many years um, because of the anorexia. And um, so that day, August 5th, um, I happened to be um, at um, an event. One of my friends, uh, Jess, is a jewelry designer and she was having a, a trunk show um, on the top of a roof of a hotel, whatever. And so some of my other friends were there and, um, I was really freaking out, um, because this was a marker of recovery, right? This is a marker of health. This is a marker of like, my body has clearly passed a threshold where it feels like it's healthy enough to give me a period. Right. Um, and, uh, so I tried to talk to my friend Jess, but obviously she was busy and there were some other friends there and they were busy. And I was literally on my way out. Like, so this was on the rooftop. So I like hit the button for the elevator. I was going to go down and I was negotiating with Ed and, and I was just like, you're right, Ed, this is too difficult. I don't think I can do it, whatever. And an angel in the form of my friend, Chris <laughs> appeared near the elevator and he was like on a phone call and he could see I was, I was crying. I hadn't had to talk to anyone and, and he asked what was wrong. And you know, all my close friends know my story. My family knows my story, whatever. So he knew my story. And uh, I said, Chris, like, I got my period. Like, this is too hard. I can't do this. Like, I'm giving up. And he looked at me and he said, pause, breathe. You don't have to move forward, but don't go backwards. And he was the first person in my life that gave me permission to maintain because everyone else, my treatment team, including my enthusiastic self was like, go, 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 go. And he's like, just chill. And so I chilled out for like three to four months and I ate safe foods. I didn't, you know, cut back on my exercise. I did what I had been doing. And then when I had the momentum and the confidence again, again, I did. And he saved my life that day. 
And he knows that. And I've told him that. And I've, I've told that story. And he has no idea how powerful those words were because it was permission to just be. And I don't, I don't think I'd ever done that before. And, you know, in the uh, world of, you know, anorexia thinking and like OCD perfectionism thinking, it's like 100% or 0%, black or white, you're in, you're out. It's like Yoda, but like in a bad sense, like do or do not, there is no try, right? Um, otherwise I love Yoda and baby Yoda. But anyway, um, he, he saved my life that day and he allowed me to keep going. And when there were times in the future where it was challenging, you know, I had my combo of like sanity is my priority. And if I'm really struggling right now, I have permission to just chill. And I think that kept me from a true, however you want to define it, relapse the last time. Like there were times when I struggled, but there was never since February 16th, 2012, never a time when I really went back to end. Um, and that, that's been like pivotal advice. So what I want to say is your friend, Chris, is a beautiful soul. What I also want to say, to, and by the way, I want to meet him. I want to say, hey, you're amazing. What I also want to say, though, is there could have been many, many angels around you at other times throughout the process, but you were willing to hear it. And you took the courage to do it. I am sure people said things to me during my recovery process that went in one year and out the other. And then one day someone said the same thing and I was in the right place at the right time, meaning the right frame of mind. I was nourished enough. I was this where I was like that. Yes. Yes. That's, that's what I want to do now. Like that's my next step. So it's a combination of everything. And this is one I've said to parents, and it's very difficult for parents to hear it because a parent never wants to see their child go through this. I will say to them sometimes, they are not ready to recover. That doesn't mean we're giving up on them. All I'm saying is, is when they're ready, they're ready. And sometimes it is a switch like that, where you just say, you know what, I'm ready now. And I feel like that's what happened with you. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, uh, you know, going back to not being in space, um, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, reflecting upon it now and process everything and like really putting it all together. Um, for the majority of the time when I had anorexia, like I couldn't really hear what other people were saying because it would come in one ear and, you know, it would sort of mull around there and, and I couldn't really hear like any, anything else. Um, both Jenny Schaefer and June Alexander do, do a good job of, you know, externalizing and personifying the Ed voice. And one of the things they talk about is how uh, Ed has like a muddy filter, right? So even well-meaning intention things like my relatives would say, oh, well, you look healthy, right? Because I got out of the hospital and I was weight restored and I was home for Thanksgiving and they saw me 
And of course, you know, they didn't know Ed was still in my head and I was still like adjusting my body, whatever. Anyway, but so they would give what they thought was a compliment, like you look healthy. And then Ed would filter that as you look fat, right? So there wasn't, there wasn't anything in there that was like sticking or good. And even aside from like eating disorders specifically, like the fact that Ed was in my head all the time, in retrospect, there were so many events that I was at, like I was physically at weddings and graduations, whatever. I was physically there, but I was not mentally present because the entire time it was Ed doing this calculus of, you know, most occasions are food. What are they serving for food? What am I going to eat? You know, how do I look? When was the last time I saw these people? What did I weigh them? Whatever. Like, I had no idea what was going around me. It was just like a body, like robot with Ed. And that's one of the great things in recovery. It's like, I am present. And going back to like that longitudinal observation, like my, my true hero, my true cheerleader has been my husband. We've been together for over 20 years now. And so he's known me, you know, when I was sick, like through my recovery and has just been so supportive and everything from Jenny's books to neurobiology, like helps him understand more. But he also saw glimpses of the essential Heather when the anorexia wasn't that bad. And in recovery, he can tell and he can see it just in my eyes. And so sometimes it's not from Ed, but if I'm like worrying about something, he can like see it in my eyes. And then when I'm actually present, I'm back and he'll just look at me and we'll still be in the same like location, but I've stopped worried about it. And I'm focusing on what's happening in the moment, like playing with our daughter Summer. And he'll just look at me and I'll go, welcome back. Because you could tell I had mentally checked out and I was worried about whatever it was. And then I decided to wrap that up and focus here on the joy of here and now. And so he can literally just tell in my eyes, welcome back. And going back to my other friends and compliments and things that truly meant a lot to me and essential, my friend Jess that I was referring to who makes jewelry, when I recovered, she gave me one of the best compliments ever. And she said, I can see the light in your eyes again. And it had nothing to do with your weight or whatever, but like she knew me and she knew that the essential Heather has sparkles in her baby blue eyes and she's happy. And the life had been sucked out of me with anorexia. And when I recovered, she could also notice that difference in my eyes. And she's like, I can see the baby boots again. You're back. There's two things. Well, there's many things I want to say, but there's two things. First of all, you know, I always think it's interesting how we all have different names for certain things. Every time you say essential Heather, all I keep thinking of is core self. Core self before it got coated with trauma, media, you know, wars, like all this, you know, sexual assault, whatever it is, that that core self, which is uninhibited. Is that the right word? I just... <laughs> Unweighted down with all of this external baggage. It is the nugget of pure joy. It is your true self. It is your essential self. It is your core being. It is also the 
time in life when we're at, when we're in our core self, where we understand hunger and fullness, where we understand that it's okay to cry when you're sad because the tears will cleanse and eventually end. It's okay to giggle because something's funny. It's all okay. It's before we started censoring ourselves. And this is what I love about my daughter, Summer, who just turned six. You talk about pure joy, movement for just pleasure. You talk about intuitive eating. That is what it is like before the world destroys it. And with anorexia for, you know, chronic, however you want to, you know, call it, you've altered things so much so that at least for me, it wasn't realistic to automatically go to intuitive eating again. I had to have a meal plan. I had to have a schedule to get my body back on it, but I'm an intuitive eater now, you know, and I, and I was like, I remember what that was like, like, oh, I'm hungry. What am I in the mood for? You know, with no consideration, like, well, what's the calories or whatever? It's like, I, I feel like that. And with Summer, um, we do that as well. And what she likes, again, has nothing to do with calories. It's just her favorite things are fresh strawberries from the garden, um, strawberry yogurt, and then Lee makes a whole bunch of great meats. So it's like chicken and pork and um, beef. And then my mother-in-law is Filipino. So she makes a lot of Filipino food. So there's like lumpia egg rolls and, and everything. So, but it's all about taste and what she wants and she eats what she wants. And when she's done, she just gets up and starts. And that's, that's the intuitive. That's everything about what your body is supposed to do before the world tells you differently. And she's a six-year-old, so she will laugh you know, she will giggle. I'll laugh and giggle right along with her. But when she gets upset, you know, she'll cry, you know, and sometimes, you know, she'll tell us like, um, you know, at school, like, you know, so-and-so wasn't paying attention. And then, you know, so we couldn't finish the activity and she was sad that they couldn't finish the activity because someone wasn't following directions or whatever. But like, she knows that and she feels comfortable sharing that. That's amazing. Hence the feeling faces, right? And I started working on that really early. I mean, it's got everything on there. I think the only thing it doesn't have there is on we, but you know, we're at that existential level yet, right? But like that helps her with how she's feeling in her body. And, you know, all feelings are valid. So listeners can't see this, but Heather has this beautiful feelings chart behind her with all these incredible facial expressions. So to to point out that there's an array of emotions that we're allowed to experience, right? There's two other things I want to comment on, and I feel like I keep always saying two other things, two other things. When you were talking about physically being places, but emotionally not being there, I very often or used to give a lot of talks at universities. And I would often talk with freshmen, incoming students, and I would say to them, I don't remember my college experience. And it wasn't because I was partying and it wasn't because I was staying out late. It's because the entire time I was in my eating disorder. Trust me, 
I went to events. I went to parties. I went to classes. I went to football games. I went to whatever it is. I'm not kidding you, Heather. I remember like three days of college. It, it's because I was in my eating disorder. Listeners have heard me say, I don't have any college friends. I'm always jealous when my high school friends are like, yeah, me and my college friends are going away for the weekend. And I'm like, wow, I, I missed all that. I didn't connect with anyone, even though it looked like I was. That's, that's the most frightening part is how much it looked like I was. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, and this is what I say to my clients all the time, or I'll say to their family members when they're like, you know, well, what am I supposed to say to, to them? Like, you know, I thought you look healthy is a great thing to say. And, you know, we're talking about how the eating disorder mind distorts that. I would get chills when I would, when I used to be a clinical director at Montanito and I would like walk into the treatment center and all of a sudden I would see somebody's eyes incredibly clear and their energy was just lighter. I, when I was at my sickest with anorexia, I had never felt heavier in my life. And I think it was just because the, the emotions weighed me down so much. So whether we're talking about anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, there is a lightness that you will experience when you are free of that really toxic voice. And I say to, to the parents or the spouses or the friends, look at their energy. Tell them how beautiful their their eyes are are open and wide and they're glowing because by the way it's not about the body it's not what it's about it's about the essence it's about the core being reawoken awaken i'm sorry i'm bad with my words today so that's what it is and that's what people were noticing with you and that's what your husband notices mm-hmm. i i agree i think um you know, if you want to give compliments, it's best to stay away from the body. But I, I feel like, you know, aside from the cliche, like, you know, eyes are the window to the soul or whatever, I, I feel like they are a good marker of, you know, are you physically present? Are you mentally present? Um, and another thing that um, I do appreciate um, with Lee is when he says like, welcome back. And so for all of the times that I don't remember, um, you know, having that connection with him. And then as I recovered and I spent meaningful time with my friends, you know, them either saying like specifically, or just giving the indication, like, I appreciate that you're here with me and you're actually participating in this exchange, in this conversation, in what we're doing. So going back to Jess, one of the first things I I did with her um, when I was in recovery was, again, she makes her own jewelry. Um, And uh, I'm not good with like fine motor things, but she obviously is, but she helped me make a necklace. Um, So it's metal um, and it was the initials for myself and Lee and to like solder it together. And it took time and it took patience and it took concentration, but I had the mental capacity to do that. And I was doing that with her as an activity. 
And as we were having a conversation, and then that was something I could take home and show Lee and wear. And there was no way I would have been able to do that before I recovered. And so my friends indicating in their own way, welcome back, was one of the best compliments that they could give. Heather, this could go on for a long time long time. We are going to have to start winding it down before we end. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd want to share with, with the listeners? So I know there were like a couple of um, guiding questions or whatever. And then one, one caught me, it was like, make sure you're prepared to answer this question which is if someone were to write about you on a bathroom wall, what would it say? And I was like, well, you know, when you think about someone writing something on a bathroom stall about you, it's not very flattering. Um, and hopefully people don't have horrible things to say about me. But if it were a positive affirmation, like you do see sometimes, uh, you know, maybe it would be something like Heather Hauer is Wonder Woman. Because I feel like I've been through a lot and I have recovered and I have thrived. And I think that for all of my challenges, I've been able to overcome a lot of them. And Wonder Woman is my idol. So, And so what people don't know is that Heather Hauer is currently wearing a Wonder Woman tank top as we're doing this episode. And you are the first person who's ever brought the question up before I've asked it because it's always my final question. It's always like, Heather Howard, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Like, I, I obviously, I don't know why suddenly I just sound like I'm a game show host. Heather Howard, look what you've won today. So, so you, you actually just, you answered the last, last question. So you are Wonder Woman. Heather, from the bottom of my heart, I really want to thank you for being here and being on the show today. Thank you again for having me. It's all my pleasure. All right, everyone. Well, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It's unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.